18. This week, uh, we will be in Matthew 18. We are teaching uh, and learning from the word expositionally as we expose the words of God as they appear in the text. Uh, if, we didn't, if we didn't teach and preach expositionally, we would teach uh, topically. Topical isn't bad, but rather than me choosing a topic that I want to talk about, we are looking at the word and going straight through this and approaching the topics that come up, and it is the living, true word of God. And so new topics come up every week, and it's great. And so here we are, Matthew 18, I'm not skipping anything that I don't like. We're going straight through the verses here. We'll look at verses 1 to 6. Uh, it's up there. Good. This has been finicky this morning. So things don't appear. Um, have your Bibles handy. There are physical Bibles in the back if you want uh, to check those out. But let's stand to read the Word of God, Matthew 18. We stand for a couple reasons. One, because it's a sign of God moving in and through us. And two, because these are God's words and they're holy. They're alive, as, as we just mentioned. So uh, verses 1 to 6, Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning wanting to learn more about you. Thank you for waking us up this morning and for bringing us around other people that are here for the same reason, to grow in their knowledge, to grow in their relationship of you, whether or not that's already been started. We're all here because we're seeking, we're wanting to learn more, we're wanting to grow as people. And so I pray this morning that we can grow in our relationship of you, that we can understand you better and that we can love you better because of it. Thank you for everything that you do for us each and every day, and thank you for this time that we have, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for meeting us here and opening our ears and our eyes and our hearts to know more about you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You can be seated. I'd like to start this morning by putting my worst foot forward uh, to tell you that this passage has been incredibly difficult for me in preparation as I've been planning to teach this. Um, I remember when my brother was in junior high, so I was even a few years younger than that. He came back from the Alive Music Festival. I don't know if any of you remember the Alive Music Festival, but my brother always went. I never did. But he came back from that festival one time, and he was telling me about something a speaker had shared uh, between concerts. And what, what the guy had said before he started his message was that he had wanted to share this message years before, but he couldn't share it because he hadn't been able to really live it out yet. And so he didn't want to share and teach people something until he was able to do it himself. And so I don't even know what the message was about. I'm sure my brother told me. Uh, but I just remember him saying that part of what that guy said, and that was years ago now. Um, so I definitely don't remember. It was a while ago. And that memory has always stuck with me, even as I prepare to teach on Sunday mornings. As an interim teacher-preacher, I want to expose the words of God. I want all of us to learn and grow together. And for that to happen, ideally, I would love if instead of me just whatever I hear, whatever I learn, whatever I read, instead of me just hearing it and then telling you that it is lived out in my life. I mean, ideally, I want it to just be an outpouring of my life. Every topic that we talk about, that's what I want it to be. But 
Don't be fooled. I can't do that at all. And the, and the text this morning really struck me with that. And if I were going to follow what that guy said, I would never teach this passage because I will never master this. I can't do it at all. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't remember every truth of God's promise moment by moment in my life enough. I guess I'm just too human <laughs> for sure, which is a good thing. So just so you know, I'm not putting my best foot forward. I'm not ever teaching anything here saying that you need to do this because I do it. I'm doing it with you, and I'm learning as we teach, as we grow together. And so I do ask that, um, that you help push me in this as well. So you can sit back, you can relax, you can get some shut-eye for the next however many minutes this takes. But um, afterwards, I would love if you did challenge me on these things as well. Um, yeah, that's for you too, not just, um, not just for me. I want us to challenge each other. And the thing that is so hard for me, the topic this morning is humility. And the reason humility is so hard for me is because pride comes very easily in my life. I'm really good at being prideful. Um, I'm very selfish. We talked about selfishness a few weeks ago and how we all have this uncanny, uncanny disposition to ourselves, how we all want everything to orbit around ourselves. We want to be selfish. But Jesus is one that serves and never seeks anything for himself. And so we can learn from Jesus and not be selfish. But that selfishness, I think, is coupled with pride. And I think everybody struggles with pride. But of course I think that because I'm too pride to think other people don't struggle with pride. Think about that one. So I want to rid myself of pride. The only way I'm going to do that is if I combat it with humility. So these are two things on opposite sides of the spectrum, as we see in Scripture. Um, Look at the old proverb, not just in the proverbial sense, um, but we see in Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. So God teaches us, which we probably all know from experience anyway, that disgrace comes with pride. So the opposite then of pride, what this is teaching, is humility. And with humility, we have wisdom. And James also references a proverb as well. He references Proverbs 3, the battle that happens between the spirit and the world and our lives, how they oppose one another, James 4, 6. Despite this battle, God gives us more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we do this. Our desire to follow God is at constant war with our passion to do whatever the world tells us to do. But remember, follower of Jesus, that God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. It's hard for me. So we seek humility because we currently sit in the place of pride. Maybe you don't sit in a place of pride, but I sure do. And in Matthew 18, we see the disciples are sitting in a place of pride as well. Verse 1, again, it shows us that the disciples ask Jesus which one of them is the greatest in heaven. Well, they don't actually ask Jesus. Matthew, it's a little bit underdone here. Um, if we look at the account in Mark, we get a better picture. Mark nine thirty-three to 35. And they, the disciples, came to Capernaum. And when he, Jesus, was in the house, Jesus asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But the disciples kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So the small difference between these two gospel accounts, uh, it doesn't actually change the point or the message of the story. But it does, I think, give us a better picture of the situation that's at hand. 
It helps us see ourselves a little bit better in here. So we talked about Jesus' omniscience last week. Well, it's happening again because the disciples did not ask Jesus. They talked about it amongst themselves. They were too embarrassed to ask Jesus. And Matthew keeps it a little vague. I think he must have been one of the biggest culprits in this argument of who is the greatest. But that's not necessarily true. That's just conjecture now. So don't hold me to that. But he does make it seem a little more ambiguous. He does, they don't ask Jesus who is the greatest. They talk about it. And now they come. And now Jesus calls them out on it. So we get that full picture in Mark's account. So the disciples who have converted, by the way, the disciples have converted at this point in time. They have confessed. They have professed Jesus as Lord. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Matthew 16. Peter says, you are the son of God. And then Jesus tells all the disciples, only God could have revealed this to you. Keep it a secret. Don't tell anybody. God, you are now converted. You believe that Jesus is the son of God. Well, keep it a secret right now. Just at that moment in time, we see the Great Commission later. We are definitely called to go out and share that with the world. But at this time, Jesus tells the disciples to keep it secret. They've all converted. But then here they are arguing about who the best one is. These hand-picked Select ones that Jesus chose are arguing about who the greatest is in the kingdom of heaven. They're not able to understand what kingdom it is that Jesus is really ushering in. And they're looking for Jesus to wear a crown of glory rather than a crown of thorns, which they'll see pretty soon. They'll understand heaven a little bit better pretty soon, but for now they don't. They're putting it in their own context. They're talking about heaven and the kingdom of heaven and how they will be there in heaven, and they will probably be the ones in charge because Jesus picked them. And so there's a hierarchy in kingdoms because that's how it is in our world, in our context. And that's what they think. But it's not really like that. <laughs> and it can be the same for each one of us. We can have a pretty wrong view of heaven. We can think about our room in heaven and how much bigger it will be, how bright it will be, how grand our room will be if we follow well the instructions of the Bible. Well, let me tell you something. The Bible, our holy word, is not instructions. This is a story. It's the one religion where we aren't just told to follow rules. We're given a story, and God says, what are you going to do about it? These 66 letters that are written for us are to change us so that we can make a decision for Christ. We fail time and time again. The disciples are failing here. And he gives us a visual this morning for us to remember the kingdom of heaven. Continuing in verse 2 of 18 in Matthew, we begin Christ's teaching. So he's going to continue teaching now for the next couple chapters. If you have the red letter version in your Bible, it'll be red letters for the next couple chapters. So we're getting a better perspective on life from Jesus here. And we're seeing it through the disciples. So all of these men, these 12 men are around Jesus. They've been arguing. They're fishermen mainly. Remember that. I imagine they're pretty beefy guys. I grew up in Amish country. I'd imagine they look pretty Amish. Probably beards, really big wrists that you could bale hay with because they got to pull those nets out uh, for all the fish. And they're talking about this manly topic of who's going to be in charge, who's going to be the biggest and the best. And so Jesus interrupts this bro time that they're having, and he brings in a little kid. He brings in a child. And so here we are this morning. We're big and beefy. Maybe we're not strong, but at least intellectually, right? We're urbanites, Clevelanders. You guys have good jobs. You're well-educated. You're beefy in the mind. Much smarter than a child. Well, God is bringing us a child this morning so that we don't just see ourselves as awesome. 
And Jesus is teaching us a couple things this morning. Firstly, first thing you need to do is turn. Secondly, you need to be like this child. You have to be childlike. Verse 3, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But the disciples weren't talking about whether or not they're getting into heaven here. They were talking about who's going to be the greatest in heaven. And so here's Jesus. He's saying something that is going to change them. Don't think about who's greatest. Think about just getting in. Yeah, you've already converted, but hold on a second. Think about it a little more. Jesus loves his followers way too much to let them have a wrong theology and a wrong belief. He loves them too much to see them argue about their pride and forget about their souls and the state of their souls because that's what matters to Jesus. The state of your soul matters to Jesus. Jesus now is talking about entering the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about salvation again, even to those that are already saved because they need to regain their perspective on life. They need to be encouraged and reminded of salvation, even after conversion. And Jesus doesn't let their incorrect theology lead them to a path of backsliding. He's refocusing their vision back to him. So the first thing that you do is turn. The ESV uses the word turn here. A lot of other translations uh, might use the word convert. But either way, in the original Greek, it is the same way that we use turn today. He turned to the crowd is the same word. But here, it's not just a physical turning that we see. We must turn from what? Why do we need to turn? Why do we need to turn from this pride and this haughtiness, this argument they're having? Why do they have to turn from that? Because it's arbitrary. What do I really have to be prideful of? What have I really done? Am I really that good of a coach? Do I really make that much money at work to be proud of my money and my possessions? Do I really have to be proud about me serving the poor, serving the church? Is that something to be prideful of? I mean, in the end, it's not good. Pride is sin. And Jesus wants us to turn from our sin. It's not a good thing to be proud about those things. And this isn't just a hashtag New Testament problem. That's my new thing I want to talk about. A lot of times I think we just think, oh yeah, these things are New Testament problems. Because now that Jesus came, we have the new covenant. This isn't a hashtag New Testament problem. It's been around for a while. It's in our nature as humans. And we've needed salvation since the world began. Jeremiah, Jeremiah puts it well. Um, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says this. Thus, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Clevelander. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So even before Jesus took on human flesh and came to earth, God told us that it doesn't matter what we do, because the only thing that we can do that matters is know God and follow him. So firstly, we turn. Secondly, we become childlike. I know I always think of being childlike, and I reference it to having faith like a child. It's hard to say that without singing it. Thank you, jars of clay. For any of you that remember that. So while I'm not going to say that having faith like a child is a bad thing, um, it's not what Jesus is getting at here. You can tell me where in the scripture it does say to have faith like a child, but what we're getting at here is humility like a child. So Jesus pulls this child in the middle of all these manly men. Can you just imagine 12 of these guys? Everyone's, I'd say, except maybe John. He was a lot younger. 
He might not have been that big. But they're all here. And then in the middle of this, you bring in this little child. I'd imagine that child came in and was probably squirming quite a bit, probably never made eye contact, and was never for a second thinking about trying to be better than all of these big people. They were just content being with Jesus, being there with him. They were humbled, I'm sure. In verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. Conversion to Jesus Christ through grace makes us a child of God. So now we become like little children. Your identity after conversion is now child of God. You're locked and sealed for salvation. You will go to heaven. And that's different than being childlike. Being like a child is different than being childish. And there's different examples in the Bible of where we see childishness. 1 Corinthians 14.20 tells us, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So this isn't an excuse to be naive, Christian. Don't say, well, I have faith like a child. Well, it's humility like a child. Anyway, don't be naive. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. Also, don't be wishy-washy in your thoughts. We're warned in Ephesians 4.14. So we may no longer be children. Maybe that last one didn't come up. The last verse was 1 Corinthians 14, 20. So you can reference that later. Next one, Ephesians 4, 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Don't be childish in your thought. Be childlike in your humility. You want to experience Jesus? You want to feel Jesus? And not just know that he came and died on a cross for you, but feel that, then humble yourself. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Like a child, in your humility, and your dependence on God, long for the gospel. And we see that in the word of God. Long for that. Long for a better understanding of Jesus, which comes from humbling yourself. And seeing your own depravity as a sinner a little bit more, because we all are. We're all broken. And maybe you already know that you're broken. Good. Because now you're humble. Now you're wise. You can see how amazing and beautiful Romans 5.8 really is. That God showed his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can actually read and understand that if you know that you're broken. It's like a child who's humble, not wanting to take a high position in the middle of all these disciples, but fully satisfied with what is right in front of him, Jesus Christ. Be humble like that child. And the amazing thing to me that, is that right now, the most humble person in this room has no idea that it's them. The most humble person in this room right now knows their place, has their identity as a child of God, and they live their life based on the gifts and the abilities that Jesus gave them. And they're doing everything to glorify him, no matter what their job is in the city. And their ability to understand that God sent his son to die on a cross for their sin. That is the most humble one in this room. And that is not me. I'll tell you that right now. So I need this. I need to grow in this. And I need to grow in the gospel, understanding why I need to humble myself to be forgiven of sin. And how can you see better the fact that you need to be forgiven? Because this is a big thing for our theology, for our mindset. Why do we need to be forgiven? Why does God need to say, yes, I forgive you of your sin? 
If God is fulfilled in and of himself, which we talked about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, if he's fulfilled, then why do we just deserve to be in hell anyway? Why does it matter? Why do we have a sense of guilt over us? Why are we born into this world broken with a sinful disposition? Why did Jesus have to sacrifice himself for our sins? Why do we need to turn? Why should you be childlike? I heard this illustration, and it helped me relate. Maybe it'll help you too. If you walk out of the church this morning, you walk towards the uh, parking deck on East 9th, where hopefully you parked. I'm guessing you did park. That's where our parking lot is. And you want to get your ticket validated, which the validator is coming at the end of the service. You can validate your ticket. There's an announcement in the middle of the sermon for you. Um, you take your ticket. You'll go over to the kiosk first. That's how you do this. You take it in, get it stamped. Then you go out to your car, you drive. And so as you walk into the kiosk with your ticket, you hear some banging somewhere in the garage. You didn't really know what it was. But uh, you go ahead, you get your ticket validated. You go to your car, and there's a guy at your car with a baseball bat destroying your car. He shattered every window. He's used the mirrors like baseball home run practice. It's out of the garage. He's dented the engine. It's all completely destroyed. Your car's gone. And he's not stopping. He's still beating this car. And you're like, I'm not stopping. This guy is crazy. So you go find a policeman. You say, hey, come check this out. Look what's going on. So the cop comes over. And as soon as you guys are there looking at this guy, the guy stops. He turns around and he says, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Oh, what do you do? I look at that cop like, that's unbelievable, this guy. Like, how rude is that of him to even ask for forgiveness right now? That makes no sense at all. And then the cop looks at you and he says, yeah, forgive him. And you think that's absurd. Well, officer, with all due respect, look what he did. He destroyed my property and somebody now has to pay for this. The officer says, well, now you're just being bitter. Just let it go. You'd be furious about that. You'd be angry. You'd want to hurt that person. You'd want to take that baseball bat yourself, I'm sure. You'd want them to pay for what they did. Why can't you just forgive them? It's a huge problem. Forgiveness is never simple. And even if you did get over it and you told the guy that you forgave him, you'd still, I'm sure, harbor ill feelings toward them. You'd never trust them again. And so not wanting to forgive... And let this guy off the hook. It's not only difficult because you're mad. It's difficult because you're loving. If you're a loving person, it would be hard to walk away and do nothing about this for the guy. Because somebody's going to have to pay. Either he has to pay for it. Either you have to pay for it. Or somebody else is going to pay for it. But it's going to get fixed somehow. And even if you say, oh, I'll let it go. I'll get another car. Well, then you're paying for it by getting another car. But somebody's going to absorb the cost here. And in forgiveness, that's what you're doing when you forgive. You're absorbing the cost of something that has been wronged. So if you love the guy, it wouldn't be loving to let him go because he wouldn't have learned a lesson at all. And it wouldn't be loving to society if you let him go because he might go do it again. And it wouldn't be loving to justice because no justice would be served. And you can't just do those things. So what do you do? We're to stand still here with how to forgive somebody. You love the guy, you just can't forgive him. It's not loving to punish him, but it's not loving not to punish him. So what do you do? If this is a problem for us in our lowly state, our lowly idea, our sense of justice, imagine what this is like for God. God who doesn't just have a sense of justice, but is the entity of justice where we even get our sense of justice from. Here's the situation then. A God who just forgives isn't showing justice. 
A God who won't forgive isn't loving. And a God who can't forgive isn't wise because he couldn't figure out how to both love and show justice. So how do you fulfill these three things? Well, in the cross, we have absolute wisdom, we have absolute love, we have absolute holiness and justification here. Jesus satisfied the love of God. That's why he had to die. So what did God do? He came to pay this debt himself. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, he had to die because someone is paying the price for this sin. For God to show justice, for him to show love, for him to show wisdom for the sinner, which I am, which you are, Jesus came so that you might be forgiven and that all of those things might be satisfied. Jesus paid the price for your sin. The price of your sin is a lot more than your car in the parking lot. And now you have eternal life. And you can know God because of Jesus. And you can know that God is fully loving. He's fully merciful. He's fully wise. So when we turn from our prideful ways, when we humble ourselves like a child, we then, in turn, become a child of God. We are children of God when we, prof- when we profess Jesus Christ as our Savior who saved us and paid this price. Anyone that professes the name of Jesus is a child. And if you, fellow child of God, let's continue in verse 5 of the text. If you, child of God, if you then receive another child of God, if you care for another believer, if you show them kindness, if you show them love, if you help them grow in their faith of Jesus Christ, if you, child, receive a child, that is receiving Jesus. That's eternally rewarding. And it's not a reward you might expect from the world. You might not even see that reward. But that's not why you're doing it. But it is eternally rewarding. It's biblical. Building up one another in Christ. So we need to do this. We need to spur one another on in love and a pursuit of Jesus Christ. Because if we're not helping each other find Jesus, if you're not helping the person sitting next to you find Jesus this morning, then what are you helping them do? That's my question this morning. If you're not helping them find Jesus, what are you doing? Because verse 6, whoever causes a child of God to sin would be better off having a millstone fastened around his neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. That's pretty intense. Who said Jesus never offended people? That's hard. I didn't come to church this morning to hear that. But this is still loving. For a false prophet teaching a false gospel... For anybody leading God's children to sin rather than to Jesus Christ, the future is bleak. And Lake Erie is waiting. And that's happening around us all the time. We are always being pulled. We're constantly being tempted from the sin of the world. Uh, But we'll talk about sin, um, the sin of the world and different sins. We'll talk about that more next week. We're warned here, verse 6, that as a child of God, walk with one another to Jesus, not to sin. And Paul illustrates it well, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 to 13. He's relating this sin with a brother. He's relating it to food. We talked about this last week, submitting so we don't offend, right? So we're here again this morning about leading a brother to sin. 1 Corinthians 8, 8 to 13. For, will not, for food will not commend us to God. Are we getting this? This is a long one. Nope. It's in and out. Um, try to find it in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 8. We're at 8 to 13. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, 
and no better off if we do. So this, again, is not one of those core issues that we've talked about in the past. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers, and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So how do we deal with this? And I think this happens a lot in our church today, because I think in our culture, in the Midwest, 